let's take our Bibles this morning, and uh, we're going to make our way to the Gospel of Luke, or the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter number 1, Luke chapter number 1, and our text this morning is going to be verse 26 down through verse number 38. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, going to be in a temporary series coming through the uh, Christmas season throughout the month of December, in which we're looking at uh, changed lives at Christ's advent. And so we're looking at the people who were alive and were impacted directly uh, during the, this time when Christ comes into the world. And uh, we actually began this series Wednesday night, so it's going to be a Wednesday and Sunday uh, series. So if you didn't get to see that or weren't here for that, you can find it on our Facebook page or on our sermon audio page. And so uh, on Wednesday, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and how the coming of Christ uh, affected them and how it changed their life. And uh, really, the, the key thread of all of this as we look at how Christ has changed the lives of these people, it all comes down to how He's changed our own life. The coming of Christ has changed us. And, and so uh, that is the most important thing for us to consider. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary, who is, I've titled the message, A Virgin Mother. A Virgin Mother. And so let's read our text this morning and look at this wonderful announcement that comes to her. And I pray that it would edify us and cause us to rejoice in uh, this wonderful uh, truth that we look at this time of year with the coming of Christ into the world. Notice in Luke chapter number 1 and verse number 26, the Bible says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not, work, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with nothing, with, with, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a wonderful text this is. Wonderful thing to look at this time of year. But we're looking at Mary, who is what we're going to call a virgin mother. We don't hear phrases like that, do we? A virgin mother. And why is that? Well, that logically doesn't make sense. It's contrary to the natural order of God's design. Now, when we think about that, uh, nowadays there's, there's certain 
uh, you know, medical technology and methods to help bring about conception for those who struggle to naturally conceive. But outside of modern medical help, it is impossible to be a virgin mother, someone who has never been uh, sexually active with a man and have a child. The very phrase carries two descriptions that contradict each other. Naturally, in order for a woman to be a mother, she cannot be a virgin. And naturally, if a woman is a virgin, it's impossible for them to be a mother of their own born child. And yet, what we find in our text is a young woman who is legitimately going to be a virgin mother. And we know this woman's name as Mary, as we've read in our text. But here's what I want us to consider. I want us to consider what it must have been like for her, for others, uh, who have experienced the coming of Christ into their life and how that affected them. Think about Mary for a moment this morning. As she's receiving this news that she's going to bear a child, what must have been going through her mind? What must have been coming to her thoughts and how her future would be affected? You see, Mary here is a virgin And yet Mary would be a mother while still being a virgin. Something that is naturally impossible. Now, why would Mary, as a virgin, soon come to bear a child into this world? And the reason is the most glorious reason of all. Because this was God's plan to bring about the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, into the world. In fact, as you study it theologically... This was the only way in which a legitimate Savior could come into the world and legitimately die for sin and be the Savior of sinful mankind. So we're looking at the lives of those who were directly changed and impacted by the arrival of Christ into the world. Now, earlier in this chapter, we saw how Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives were changed by the soon arrival of Christ. You say, well, how does Christ's coming affect Zechariah and Olivia? Not Olivia, uh, Elizabeth. Well, because to them also was given the promise of a son. A son who would be naturally conceived and naturally born, but yet in a miraculous way, they would bear a son in their old age, beyond childbearing years, and this son also would be special. What would be special about the child they would have? This son would be the prophet, the forerunner, the one who would pave the way and prepare the people for the Messiah who was to come. So that was a miracle itself. But then we see another miracle here with Mary. That's an even greater miracle, a greater announcement. You see, the name of this child would be greater. The person of this child would be greater than that of John the Baptist. This child that would be born to Mary is the long-awaited Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Lord, the King, the one that had been anticipated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now let's ponder all this for a moment. Do you think that with all of this happening, with this announcement we read, that Mary's life would be changed from that day forward? Absolutely it would. Now, anything can change our life in a day, right? The day before she received this announcement, she's going about her usual life as a young Jewish girl. And then this day happens, and her life is drastically changed in a moment. 
And here's the reality, friend. Because of the coming of Christ, real lives have continued to be changed for nearly 2,000 years. You, you, You think about yourself and ponder the meaning of Christ's arrival into the world. How has Christ changed you? That's the question. But even a more important question is this. If Christ has not changed you, consider that. Consider, has Christ changed you at all? Do you need to believe on Him? Notice with me in our notes here this morning, number one, I want you to see Mary's favor with God personally. I want you to see Mary's favor with God personally. So we we learn a little bit about Mary. Who is this Mary? What can we learn about her? I I want to point out two things here about Mary that are very obvious from our Scripture. And the first one is this, is that she was a pure woman. She was a pure woman. Now, now notice that with Mary, that, that she was not a, a very prominent woman in her society. She dwelled in Galilee, the Galilee region, which was largely scorned by the higher class of Jews, okay? Most of that region had a lot of Gentiles in it, and they were greatly disdained by the Jews. But we learn in verse 26 where she's from. Notice this, that the angel Gabriel came to Mary in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. Now, we read a little bit about Nazareth in the Scripture, don't we? Jesus is known as Jesus of what? Nazareth, right? That that was an indication of where he was from, where he was raised. And since that was where he was raised... He was not immediately recognized as someone who would have much significance. So, so Nazareth was a very uh, 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 a low-key town that, that did not carry much weight among the people. You remember Nathaniel's response when Philip, uh, when Philip was talking to him about Jesus, that, that we found the Messiah, and this is his name. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what was Nathaniel's response in John 1, 46? He says the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, well, won't you come and see? <laughs> come and see. And when you come to see Jesus, you realize that something very good came, has come out of Nazareth. You see, Nathaniel apparently expresses the contemporary skepticism of that day that a prophet, no prophet, would arise from Galilee. Nazareth is an insignificant village, not mentioned in the Old Testament or other Jewish literature at that time. While Galileans were despised by the Judeans, Galileans themselves despised people from Nazareth. Nazareth? was a remote corner of the country and uh, in no reputation for religion or learning, but it bordered upon those with the heathen. The village's 40,000 square meters could have accommodated a population of about 2,000 at its high point, but current estimates allow a population of only 200 to 500 at the time of Jesus. So this is a very small, very insignificant town, a place that was scorned and looked down upon by by the people of that day. But what do we gather here about Mary? So what can we gather about her? She wasn't a prominent or well-known young woman. She didn't have much material wealth. She didn't have a great name. Her home was no grand estate. But despite Mary's low status, 
In society's terms, she was faithful to God. She was faithful to God. And Christian, I want you to understand that that is what truly matters. Because the world would have us to believe that the best life is having the best and being the best and being known and being in in a well-known place. None of those things really matter. What is it that really matters in our life? that we know the Lord and our life is being lived for Him. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 15, 16, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble there with it. So, So it doesn't matter your wealth, your status in society, your achievements. What matters to God is your heart for Him and your life being lived for Him. So that begs the question for all of us, is Christ the center of our life? Is He who we love and who we live for? Now notice that Mary's life as consecrated to the Lord is evident in the text in a specific way. I mentioned that she was a pure woman. Well, how was Mary pure? Look at verse 27. The Bible tells us that the angel Gabriel comes to her and the, notice that she is known as the Virgin Mary. To the, and the Virgin's name was Mary. Now understand that being a virgin meant that she had been pure sexually. And that was an act of obedience to God's law, to God's word, living in a pure fashion. Mary knew the law of God. She knew the importance of being pure until marriage, even though she's engaged, as we would say. Now, you notice that the text tells us about Mary that she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Well, what's that mean to be betrothed? We've probably heard about this. To be betrothed is like an engagement, but it's actually more binding than the average engagement that we have today, right? A betrothal means that the couple does not live together or consummate their union, but if they're going to break it off, a legal divorce was necessary in order to break off that relationship. Now, it was was evidently far more serious than what the modern concept of engagement is. But here's what I want you to see, that despite the fact that Mary is legally bound to Joseph awaiting that certain wedding day, she still had not been sexually active with him or with anybody else. Now, this speaks volumes to the church today. In most relationships, sexual activity has become a normal thing outside of marriage, especially if they are engaged. Would you agree, church, that sexual purity is under assault in our world and culture? It is. And I want you to understand, I'm not just talking about the unregenerate unregenerate around us. I'm talking about professing believers engaging in sexual actions with partners that they are not married to. Now, the world tells us, that's no big deal. That's just natural. It's not that big a deal. It's between me and my partner. But what does God say about that? I don't really care what the world says. And you don't have to care what I say about it. What does God say? God says that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sin against Him. It is sin. Just as much as lying is sin or thieving is sin or homosexuality is sin, it is sin to engage in sexual acts outside of marriage. 
And what we find is that sexual purity is becoming all the more uncommon even among Christians. Now, this is why Paul wrote to the churches frequently and mentioned this very thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through 5 says this. Notice what Paul says to this church. He says in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now he describes what part of sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, that's what we were looking at in Ephesians last week, wasn't it? The new life versus the old life. And Paul says you, you, you have a new life. Don't live like the Gentiles do. And so it is not God's will for any person to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, especially the Christian who knows better. So here is what we find with Mary. Mary's purity here is a loud testimony to the church today. Though she wasn't prominent or prosperous, she was pure. And understand this, purity is priceless. It's priceless. Now, especially when you consider the importance of her being a virgin. How important is it for Mary to be a virgin in the scheme of redemption that we're looking at here? Friend, if Mary was not faithful to God in her purity, God could never have used her for this great privilege, great privilege of being the mother of the promised Messiah. He could only use a pure woman as his chosen vessel, and Mary was that woman. So we see this about Mary. She was pure, but let her be. Notice also that she is a preferred woman. She's a preferred woman. Now, as we continue with what angel Gabriel says about Mary, we learn more about her. Gabriel says in verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You'll notice that some translations will also have that Gabriel says, Blessed are you among women, which is true. But I want you just to ponder this whole scene for a moment. Gabriel, the archangel of Almighty God, leaves the splendor of heaven on a mission from the Lord, enters this poor town of Nazareth to tell a lowly young woman that she is favored and blessed. Imagine these words coming to Mary. She knows who she is. She knows where she is. She doesn't think herself to be some big somebody. But God sends an angel directly to Mary and to tell her, you are favored and blessed. Favored and blessed. You see, with all, with all of the lives of the people we examine at Christ's advent, we put ourselves in their shoes and wonder what must they have thought or felt and reacted in this moment. Now, Scripture tells us her initial response in verse 29. We notice that she was greatly troubled at the saying, and try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I mentioned Wednesday that up until this time, there had been about 400 years of silence from God. No prophet had arisen, no angelic message, no, no divine inspired words from God given to His people. It's been silent. No books written. 
So Mary is receiving word from an angel, and she knows that God has not spoken in a long time. She doesn't yet know that the angel has already come to Zechariah. She doesn't know about that. And so this is marvelous, a breathtaking encounter for her to see and hear from the angel of God. Not only is she just seeing and hearing a message from the Lord, that, that's a staggering thing in itself, but it's what she hears that's fascinating. Gabriel calls her the favored one and blessed among women. Notice verse 30. What does he say in verse 30? We find that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So he seeks to calm her and then repeats the same thing he just said about her. You have found favor with God. Now, what does this mean that she has found favor with God? The word favor in verse 30 is the Greek word charis. And that is the exact same word translated as grace in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the same Greek word here, charis, is translated as favor, is also translated as grace. What is this grace? What, we've, we know this church. What is it? It is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. And so what does this mean for Mary? It means that Mary has received God's grace upon her. Why did she receive this favor? Because the Lord chose to bestow it upon her according to His good pleasure. By the very definition, this favor can't be earned. And it's not deserved. Therefore, it is given only by God's free grace. Mary couldn't contribute to receiving such fair favor. Mary couldn't decide, Lord, I want you to use me to do this. And this is the truth, understand, for salvation and for service for anyone of God. Those who have found favor with the Lord have been given it by the Lord. We find examples of this all through Scripture. Noah, for example, in his days, the days of wickedness. Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Doesn't mean Noah was out looking and found it. It means that God had placed it upon him. He's a recipient of favor. It is not ourselves. It's not of ourselves, but of the Lord alone that grace is bestowed upon us. And so Mary here, understand, she is a recipient of grace. Not the source of grace, as some try to falsely claim. So how does this favor affect Mary? Well, firstly, as I mentioned, it demonstrates her salvation. She is a converted young woman. One who knows the Lord by His grace alone. But secondly, into the context, it demonstrates God's calling to use her for a specific purpose. A specific purpose. She has received grace not only in her salvation but also to be used by God in a miraculous way. Because it is by grace that God's people are used for His purposes. We often think of grace as only applying to salvation, but I want you to understand, all that we are is of grace. All that you can do for the Lord is of grace. Everything that we have as good is attributed to grace alone, friend. We're unworthy, we are unable to earn it, it's all of Him. 
The Apostle Paul spoke this way in regards to his ministry and calling in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Couldn't we all say that? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, talking about other servants, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul attributes everything he is and all that he does to the grace of God in him. And that's a principle for us too. We have nothing to boast of. So how would God's favor affect Mary? It would affect her by using her to do something, watch this, that only one person in all of history could be used to do. One person in all of history could be used to bear the child. That is the Son of God. Think about that for a moment. Now, many people can take up many other tasks, right? Many people could build a house or fix a car, farm the land, write a book, or become an athlete, or do something great. There's so many other things that several other people could do. But when it comes down to giving birth to God's Son, there is only one person in all of history who could be called to do that, that could be used to do that. Giving birth to God's son is the privilege of one person. And God chose Mary for that. Now, think about this in light of Mary. Mary didn't have much favor from society or the higher class in Jerusalem. Mary was poor, but she was a pure, godly woman. She wasn't popular, but she was preferred in the eyes of God. She had the favor of God. And Christian, understand this in the realm of your own life. That you, as a recipient of grace, are favored. Not because you're worthy, not because you earned it, because of God's grace alone. You get, you, you get to serve because of grace alone. You are saved because of grace alone. And all of this points to Mary and who she is. So we see Mary's favor by God personally. But notice number two this morning. We see Mary's future by God's providence. And this is where it just gets so rich with, with what, the, what Gabriel tells her. Two quick things. Notice that she will conceive the promised Savior. This is, this is God's providence in her life. This is her future. She will conceive the promised Savior. Verse 31. Notice what the angel says. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, how surprising this must have been to hear that news. Usually when a child's going to be born, who tells whom we're having a baby? Does the father know first? Not unless he's a lucky guesser. Both, all three times that we found out we were having a child, I had no clue about it. Bethany knew. She found out. The mother is the one who tells the father. When Bethany uh, was pregnant with David, I had no clue about that. And so on Father's Day of 2017, she gave me a, a gift wrapped up. And I thought, I thought you weren't going to get me anything. She said, well, I got you something. <laughs> I opened it up, expecting, you know, a new tie or something preacherly, you know. And what I got was a positive pregnancy test. And I thought, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> it's always the mother who tells the father that the baby's on the way, right? But this case is totally different. This time, it's the mother 
having never been sexual with any man who's being told a child is on the way in your womb, going to be. This is a message from the Heavenly Father telling her that she's going to bear the Son of the living God. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what must have been flowing through her mind and her emotions as those words enter her ears. But it only deepens as Gabriel continues. Not only are you going to have a child, but Gabriel says in verse 31, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, we're all familiar that names were very significant to the Jewish people, weren't they? Names mean something. Do you think Mary had an understanding of the significance of the name Jesus? Absolutely. The very name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. It signifies salvation. And this, friend, is the very reason that Jesus would be born into the world. Because he alone is the Savior who would save sinners from their sins. It is in his name alone that we are saved. Peter preached to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Mary's not only getting the news that, oh, you're going to have a son, but this son is the Savior, the very one person who has promised to come and now is coming to redeem His people from their sins. Christian, this is why the birth of Christ is so important to us. This is why it's worth celebrating. This is why it's worth uh, acknowledging and, 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 and understanding what took place with the arrival of Christ. It is the coming of the Savior into the world to save us from sin. But it just gets deeper and deeper. Verse 32 through verse 33, look at what Mary hears about this child. Not only will he be the Savior, but notice just a few things that Gabriel says. She, he firstly says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. You see, this Jesus to be born of Mary would not be like other children. He would be great because of who He is. And who He is is the Son of the Most High. Being the Son of the Most High, Jesus would carry the nature of the Most High, meaning He is divine, equal to the Most High. Jesus is God. No more, no less than the Father and Spirit also are God. Many want to downplay Jesus. They go, oh, he was just another good religious teacher. No, friend, he's the creator of the world. He's the Holy One. He is God in flesh. He's the eternal one who took on flesh as the Son of God. John 1.14, the Word, that eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so by saying these words, Gabriel is affirming to Mary that her child will and is divine, will be and is divine. But notice also she says, or excuse me, he says, Gabriel He says, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. This marks the fulfillment of what was promised long ago, that Israel's messianic king, the messianic king, would come through David's line and assume kingship over the kingdom. Now, the term David's throne here is not reference to a a, a literal throne, as if there's some stone throne sitting somewhere that he's going to sit on. But rather, David's throne is emblematic of the messianic kingdom. That he's the one who rules and reigns. He is the king. The throne is a position. It's not a place. Peter applies this great truth of Jesus assuming David's throne 
by His resurrection and His ascension on the day of Pentecost. You go read Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 36. Peter applies David's throne to Jesus' ascension to His throne where He is now. And what does the Messiah do from His throne? What does Gabriel say here? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Friend, Mary is being told what will happen while we're looking back at what has transpired with Christ's arrival, his redemption, his his completion of redemption, and his ascension. You see, Christ is Lord and King over his people, over this world, over this universe. There's not one square inch of all creation where Jesus does not say, that's mine. He reigns, friend. He's the sovereign over all things. And His kingdom, which which came with His first coming, it, it, like a mustard seed, started small, but it begins to grow and grow, and it eventually spreads out throughout the the whole earth. His kingdom spreads by His own sovereignty, by the power of the gospel. His kingdom never ends as He rules in righteousness. Hebrews 1.8 But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. We could dive deeper into these words uh, in, in all that Gabriel communicates here, but that's not our aim. We consider how marvelous, how glorious these words must have been as they entered the ears of young Virgin Mary Consider Mary hearing this news. What's going through her mind? What would you be thinking? How marvelous are these words for us today? What a glorious child Jesus is. Or was, may I say. Because the baby in the manger is no longer in the manger. He's he's on the throne. He's the king. But this begs the question of what Mary will ask. How? (laughs) This is wonderful news, but how? How? Letter B, we notice that she will conceive by the power of the Spirit. She will conceive by the power of the Spirit. Mary Mary asks a legitimate question. Look at verse 34 with me. How will this be? Why? Since I'm a virgin. How, How can I conceive and have a child when I've never been with a man? In Mary's thinking, conceiving a child, being a virgin, that's a mystery, an impossibility by natural means. Now, her question is a natural one that any one of us would have asked, but understand that her heart is pure in asking it. In contrast to Zechariah, who in verse 18, you remember what, what the Gabriel, Gabriel told Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son by natural means beyond their childbearing years. And Zechariah basically asked the same question. Verse 18, how shall I know this? Zechariah was punished. Mute, couldn't talk. Possibly couldn't hear either for nine months at least. The difference is the heart between Mary and Zechariah and their question. Mary understood. The angel was speaking of an immediate conception, and she and Joseph were still in the midst of a long betrothal, that engagement period, before actually consummating their marriage. Her question was born out of wonder, not doubt or disbelief. So the angel does not rebuke her like he does Zechariah. Zechariah's question was out of disbelief and doubt. Mary's was out of wonder. Gabriel gives her the answer, verse 35. Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. Friend, this would be a divine miracle, a unique conception that only God could perform. You see, the person of the Holy Spirit would implant the seed of the Messiah into the womb of Mary. So, well, how does that happen? Don't ask me that. That is both mysterious and miraculous when we consider it. And being such, mysterious and miraculous, the doctrine of the virgin conception is hard to be grasped by the natural mind, and it is quickly rejected by those who lack faith to believe it. There is a lot of scrutiny and attack on this very issue. Even some modern-day quote-unquote Christians claim that Mary was not really a virgin. That is an impossible idea. But this is why Gabriel goes on to tell her about Elizabeth's pregnancy in verse 36, but then he closes in verse 37 with that emphatic statement that we can never get around. For nothing will be impossible with God. You say, well, how can, how can Mary be a virgin and, and conceive? Nothing is impossible with God. The power of the Spirit would be the work, be the agent at work here. And this is the mark of faith, friend. To believe in the God who does the impossible, who contradicts the natural reasoning of our minds. The very essence of the nature of God is that He is all-powerful and can do what we cannot fathom. The very gospel message is believing in the impossible. Jesus died. But then He rose again three days later. Rising from the dead is impossible by natural reasoning and means. And so also is the virgin birth. You see, the virgin conception was foundational, is a foundational and essential requirement for the Messiah to truly be legitimately the Savior. And notice why. Gabriel says, says, Gabriel says because Mary will conceive in this manner of the Spirit's power, the child to be born will be called what? Holy. What other child has ever been born that you could call as holy? None. None. You see, the miraculous means of Christ's incarnation sets him apart as truly holy. Holy. Since he did not come from man's seed, which naturally inherits what? Sin. Sin. So Jesus, understand, because of this method, because of this miraculous means, He is the God-man, holy and righteous in the very nature and character of His being as a real human. He is the eternal God who has taken man's likeness as His own through the incarnation. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It captures this. You may have to read it four or five times like some of his. But they're deep and rich. Notice what he says. He who never began to be, that's his eternally, internal nature, but eternally existed, began to, began to be what he eternally was not and continued to be what he eternally was. What does he mean by that? The eternal God took on flesh and is still the eternal God. Now, why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would He do that? Christian, if you're sitting here today, the answer to that question is you. 
to redeem you from your sins. Paul points this out in Philippians 2.8, which this text is, in, is very deep in regards to the incarnation. But notice, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This is what we see as the hypostatic union. 100% God, 100% man. Two natures in one glorious person, the God-man. Because only the God-man could save and redeem sinners like us. We truly can't fathom the incarnation, but my do I praise the Lord for it. And you ought to as well. What a fascinating announcement this is. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. What's going through her mind? How would it change her life? Notice with me number three, we're, as we close out, notice number three, we see Mary's faith in God's plan. Mary's faith in God's plan. Now, now here's what I want to point out about her. Two quick things. The first thing I want you to see that she is surrendered to God's plan. She is, she is submissive and surrendered to what God is saying to her through, through Gabriel. I love her response in verse 38. Notice this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That's her heart. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a response that should be for us in everything that we face. Could there have been a better response? Now, I want you to consider this. Mary is most likely only a teenager. In that culture, the Jewish culture, the betrothals took place early in life. She is most likely no more older than 15 or 16 years old. And she just got an announcement that would change the rest of her life. She's going to have a child. Now, having your first child is always life-changing news, right? But you've got to think about Mary's scenario. It makes it different. She's going to conceive miraculously and be carrying a child while she is only betrothed to Joseph. She's not fully married to Joseph yet. Her future husband is not the father. She has to break the news to Joseph. Honey, I know we're betrothed, but I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. What would he say? She has to navigate her own culture with the assumptions of those around her. What would they think? Even more concerning is the danger of possible punishment for what would appear to be her impurity. Those who would think that she has committed adultery against Joseph. What about God's law? There's so much uncertainty ahead of her, and yet her response is this. Let it be to me according to your word. How many times have we faced things with uncertainty ahead of us? God has providentially done something or brought something to our life. We ought to have the same kind of outlook. Lord, your will be done. What could possibly cause such a response as this? The answer is one thing. It's faith. It's faith. See, she believed the word of God from Gabriel and knew that the Lord will fulfill all that he has just spoken. In verse 45, when Elizabeth is speaking about her, remember we looked at Wednesday when Mary, she gets the news about Elizabeth. She goes to visit Elizabeth, and she stays with her for about three months and learns about John the Baptist's arrival. But, but Elizabeth knows that Mary is carrying the mother, that, she, that Mary is the mother of her Lord. She's carrying the Lord. But here's what, Mary, uh, what Elizabeth says about Mary in verse 45. She says, Blessed is she who what? Believed. 
that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Right there we find Mary's faith professed by Elizabeth. Her faith shines through all of this and is a testimony to all of us. Proverbs 3 and verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Our own understanding cripples us. But trusting in the Lord always keeps us upright. By faith, she yielded her life to the Lord's will, even though it would change her life forever. William Barclay rightly said, The world's most popular prayer is, Thy will be changed, but the world's greatest prayer is, Thy will be done. We often say, Oh, Lord, do this and do that. When we ought to be praying, Lord, Your will be done. If this is God's will, He will take care of it, and she believes the Lord. Let her be. Lastly, she rejoiced in God's plan. She rejoices in this. See, Mary had faith that in turn looked to rejoicing, and we, we read of her, her pronouncement uh, of praise here in verse 46 through verse 55. Let's read this briefly. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who has mighty who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's a glorious song of praise that Mary gives. And that's what we find with Mary, is that her life has changed. God took somebody who was really a nobody and made her into somebody. All because of the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ. You see, from this time forward, Mary, who was a poor, unpopular, low-class citizen in society, would become a person revered and honored throughout all of history. Verse 48, she said, Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now understand, Mary is not to be worshipped or thought to be divine, as some have falsely and erroneously Put forth, but we thank the Lord for how He used Mary. She would be the one person to give birth to God's Son. She would be the only earthly mother to raise God in flesh. Think about that reality. Mary got to raise the perfect child. I know every parent tends to think their child's perfect. But I'll just, I'm not even going to pretend with that one. I'll testify right off the bat, mine ain't perfect. No child on earth has ever been perfect except Jesus. I wonder what that must have been like for Mary. We think about it as we close. Mary was a virgin who would miraculously become the mother of the Savior of the world. Do we think that the advent, the coming of Christ changed her life? Absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. But the real question for all of us today is, has the coming of Christ changed our own life? 
you know Christ personally in your heart? Have you been changed by what he came and did many, many years ago? Today, if you don't know Christ, I pray that you would look to him and believe because he is the only Savior of the world. You'll not have salvation outside of him. You must see how sinful you are, how wretched you are. The whole reason Christ came to the world is because of how wretched you are. If you and I were good enough or could earn our way to heaven, there'd been no reason for Jesus to come. But he came because we couldn't. He did what we couldn't do. Paid the penalty we couldn't pay. Overcame the enemy we couldn't defeat. And if you know Jesus, you know that he's changed your life. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you and thank you so much for sending your son into the world. So much more time could be given to this announcement and much more could be brought out with everything that Gabriel has spoken. But I pray that we've seen the big picture here today. How that you changed the life of Mary with the coming of Jesus. And that by the coming of Jesus, he not only changed her life, but he's changed my life. He's changed many of the lives in this room. And he continues to change lives. And we'll do that until he comes. Thank you so much, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you for using Mary to bring him into the world so that he could die in our place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.